everybody, I'm Chris and with me is Matt and we're slowing down to better connect with the stories and the people around us between the miles. Matt, uh, so today's guest, Ralph Moore, who's been a longtime friend of mine, uh, he got on this show and I think he uh, introduced us to a new kind of way of having this uh, these conversations, right? Um, I, we learned he's quite the storyteller. Yeah, so uh, this show is all about connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, right, for connection to happen, right, new doors have to open. Mm-hmm. And I think this is going to be a really tremendous way for us to connect with our listeners, um, but also for people to just connect with a story, right? So so um, I think that the vision for us is is we uh, we stepped out of the way uh, once we we realized just how tremendous Ralph was, and uh, we we let him run the show, and uh, we're excited to have uh, Ralph as a storyteller today. Definitely, definitely, and uh, and we'll we'll have some more information um, uh, about Ralph in the, in the show notes and, and everything like that. But uh, as Matt said, um, we just want to kind of step out out of the way. So if, if after you hear the show, though, you can think of other people who are great storytellers. Uh, just shoot us an email at info at betweenthemiles.com. We'd love to get them um, on the show because uh, there's so much that you can learn from a story. So without further delay, here is Ralph Moore. Ralph Moore, welcome to the the, the show. Uh, just so glad to have you on. Uh, Matt, um, I, I don't know about you, but I am so excited to have Ralph here because uh, Ralph and I have known each other for for quite a while. Actually, Ralph, I don't know if uh, I mentioned this before, but I've been in Baltimore now for 17 years. So, okay. so we met wow. about 17 yeah. years ago. Yeah. Um, and uh, Ralph, why, why don't you just share with, uh, with everyone who you are and what you do and just a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, I'm 17 years old and no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, uh, I'm a lifelong Baltimorean. I'll be 69 on my next birthday, which is a couple of months. Uh, and I've been here uh, all my life, except for a brief stint, stint right after college. I uh, moved to Buffalo, New York to do some community organizing work. Uh, which I enjoyed. And I worked for a Jesuit priest who was up there who, who had taught me math in high school, a fellow named Father Jack Martinez, God rest his soul. Uh, but uh, Buffalo was boring, with all due respect to Buffalo. <laughs> and uh, I was nervous about the weather, the impending weather. So I said, let me get the heck out of here. And at that time, uh, my old high school invited me to come uh, and interview for a teaching job uh, there. And by the time I, teaching social studies, and by the time I finished the conversation, they had offered me a job. So I, uh, I, I, I came back to Baltimore and I've been here and worked at a number of uh, uh, social change and social justice uh, agencies then in housing, uh, in, in food. I, worked, I was with the Maryland Food Committee for some years, a statewide anti-hunger organization. I was with St. Ambrose Housing Aid Center for almost 20 years and I, I knew those Jesuit priests who started that organization before, uh, I knew them before they started St. Ambrose Housing. And I was assigned uh, immediately to work in one of the poorest neighborhoods in Baltimore. I was trying to settle in and be a housing counselor. uh, Before I could get comfortable at my desk, they said, oh, we got an assignment for you. 
in the Oblate Sisters of Providence, who were an order of African-American nuns, uh, who taught me actually from kindergarten to eighth grade, uh, said that they'd like somebody to come down. Uh, and I think they might have uh, selected me particularly because they, they, they knew me as a group uh, to come down and work on housing issues down in that neighborhood. And the neighborhood has the Maryland State Penitentiary in it uh, and the Baltimore City Jail. Uh, and that's kind of symbolic of how, uh, you know, sort of run down the neighborhood is in, in, in many ways. And it's within, but it's in with, within walking distance of downtown. You can get downtown in a few minutes. Uh, so the nervousness was that the neighborhood eventually would become uh, gentrified. Uh, it hasn't so far, but uh, the median household income at that time was something like $4,400. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and the houses were pretty run down. So, uh, you know, we ended up uh, trying to renovate some houses, which we did. We turned the school building into a Section 8 or subsidized apartments and, and another uh, eight units. There was 12 apartments in that school building and another eight units out in the neighborhood. Uh, and then we did sit-ins at the housing department to get people some housing relief. Uh, and that got me in some trouble, good trouble. Uh, but uh, before I knew that phrase, uh, but, uh, you know, we ended up sitting in at City Hall. We took women uh, mostly, but some men down the City Hall to demand some uh, decent, affordable housing because the houses they lived in were run down and neglected uh, by the city and uh, private landlords were charging too much. So anyway, uh, that was my uh, housing experience with that organization. Uh, but, you know, I just taught a few things here and there. I, 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 I taught uh, pre-GED for adult learners who wanted to, to get their, their GED. I taught that for the Baltimore City Community College. Uh, and before that, uh, I ran a, an apartment building and resource center for formerly homeless youth over in Park Heights. I thought I'd never want to work in Park Heights, but there it was. Uh, and I didn't think I'd ever work for Baltimore City Community College, uh, but it happened. You know, so, and I enjoyed both of those experiences. They were not easy, uh, either one of them, but uh, I, I enjoyed them. So, uh, so that's what I've, uh, I've done. And who knows where the time goes. My wife is uh, the chief equity officer for the city of Baltimore. You remember Dana. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, she's an attorney. Uh, she was the city's top lawyer. She was the first female uh, lawyer for the city. Uh, and she sort of got bumped for that job. Uh, and it, but the uh, mayor asked her to be his chief equity officer. Mm. Uh, he's very interested in equity in the city. So, so uh, that's her job, and that's where she spends a lot of her time. Uh, and then we have two daughters, uh, one with two children, our, our oldest granddaughter, Selena, uh, who's a freshman at Friends, uh, and uh, a new a grandson who was eight months old. Uh, that's Nia, uh, our younger daughter's kids. And then Zara moved to, to uh, North Carolina uh, just as she, she's in the restaurant business and she moved down there just as the bottom fell out from the restaurant business. Oh, uh, she moved there in February and in March things collapsed. So she's in Winston-Salem. Uh, she took our four-year-old grandson who'll be five in, in July and, and uh, it kills me not to be able to see him, uh, but, uh, and, uh, and she's expecting again, so she's due 
uh, in July. So we may have three kids, grandkids born in July. So I'll definitely be broke uh, by then. <laughs> uh, it's, like, it's like, you know, we have three people born in September. Uh, my wife, my granddaughter, and, and her mother uh, are all born in September. So by October 1, I am, uh, I'm out on the street with a, a bunch of pencils and trying to sell <laughs> you know, whatever but anyway so that's my family life uh and i had you know i grew up with us with us uh, you know, a lot of brothers and sisters there were eight of us mm-hmm. we almost had one kid in every grade at saint pius fifth uh oh, yeah one time with the uh with the oblate sisters saint pius fifth is located in harlem park i grew up in, in sandtown winchester where freddie gray was killed uh but uh once you cross one street from our house, our apartment, actually, uh, you were in uh, Harlem Park. Uh, and so uh, we, uh, there were a bunch of us, but that was St. Pius V. St. Pius X is located on York Road. Mm. I don't know if you all are familiar with it. Oh, yeah. Uh, but St. Pius V, uh, when we took the entrance exam to, for Catholic schools, I think the archdiocese put that out, uh, they sent the results to St. Pius X because they didn't believe that the kids over in that poor inner city school uh, would score well enough to pass those entrance exams. So they, they, they sent our results away. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, that's, that's the way life was. That's the way life is in, in some ways. So uh, that's my life story and I'm sticking to it. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. And uh, Ralph, um, I'm always amazed by how much you've done and accomplished and, and all those um, things. Um, the one thing that's always that I've always appreciated about you and Dana as well is how much you love the like community, right? It's like you, you have this love for Baltimore City, but you also have this love for community. And just even with what you just shared with us, the connections that you have, with, with other people, working with other people. Where do you feel that um, sense or that drive to be community-oriented or community-focused comes from? I mean, because uh, not everyone is that way, right? Um, sometimes we just get in our own little lanes and we head forth, but what? where do you think this community-driven focus comes from? Well, I think two or three things. One is, you know, when you have eight brothers and sisters, <laughs> living <laughs> in a community, for God's sake. True. You know, so... There were five boys and three girls, so mm-hmm. we dominated. But my mother expected us to wash dishes and 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 uh, all that, and cook sometimes. You know, we, it was not something that my grandmother was different. My grandmother would, when we'd visit her, and my sister was, and I visited her, she would insist that I sit down while while my sister and she cooked and, and served us at, at dinner and all. It drove my sister nuts. Uh, but uh, my mother was different. Her daughter was different. She she said, "Get up, you know, here's your day to wash dishes." Uh, is your David cooked something? And, and you know, I think those were, uh, were important, uh, valuable things. But the second thing is, is that the Avalanche sisters always said, remember to come back to the community, you know, as we were heading off to high school uh, and they were sending some of us to uh, predominantly white schools. Uh, and uh, they, they told us to remember where we came from. That was, in, that was a lesson in the classroom. Those were nuns who would, you know, in, after your, you know, your math class, they would say, now, uh, now um, put your books away for a minute and, and, and uh, listen up. They would talk, just talk to you about life. 
uh, and all. Uh, and then the third thing uh, was, I was always attracted to, to things that were going on uh, mm. in the community. And there were people out there in the community that I uh, admired uh, and wanted to emulate, uh, you know. Uh, but, you know, some of those people would drag me to uh, picket lines. Uh, you know, there was a regular picket line against a major real estate uh, uh, owner and dealer in, in Baltimore. That, and, and there'd be pickets uh, every day on every Saturday. Uh, and every day in the summer. So I spent time on those picket lines uh, with some Jesuit priest. Uh, the the uh, aforementioned Jack Martinez, for example, was one of the leaders of, of, of that. Uh, and, and so people would drag you out to those things and they'd drag you over to churches to, to, to interrelate with kids from other religions and dialogue about that stuff. Uh, that was the ecumenical movement uh, and all. Uh, so I was kind of pulled into those things uh, in some ways, uh, not kicking and screaming, but, but uh, nonetheless, there were people who uh, encouraged me. Uh, and some of those people I, I, I came to admire quite a bit, uh, not just Jack Martinez, but Frank Fisher was the Jesuit who recruited us African-American students to come to the high school. Uh, and and help put together some money for us to be able to afford the tuition. So I got a, a four-year scholarship uh, to Loyola for $1,600, $400 a year. Uh, and the money uh, came from a Carroll scholarship named after John Carroll, a Jesuit, as you recall, who became an archbishop. Uh, but the money actually came from, uh, the money for that, that scholarship fund came from the Jesuits uh, selling property that they held in Prince George's County where they had held slaves. So I feel in some ways that slaves paid for my high school education uh, and I'm honored by that. And they keep whispering in my ear, uh, you know, keep pushing, keep fighting uh, and all. Um, so, uh, but on that picket line, I ran into people who were very community connected and, and all people like Walter P. Carter. He's got a daughter that's a state senator, uh, Jill Carter is her name. And she's the one that years ago started pushing for reform in terms of police community relations. Long before people were onto that issue, uh, she was fighting for that. And so she was very much a part of the uh, Maryland General Assembly's uh, recent passage of uh, a number of bills to reform uh, police community relations, including uh, getting rid of the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights uh, and creating uh, some standards in terms of use of force. Uh, and although Baltimore City has had body cameras for some time, uh, the new law requires that every jurisdiction in the state have, have their police officers wear body cameras by 2025. And, you know, everybody isn't you know, big and rich like Baltimore, rich, quote unquote, uh, but uh, nonetheless, they they uh, have to find a way uh, to uh, to fulfill that uh, that expectation. Uh, but uh, anyway, so there there are some changes coming. Uh, but uh, you know, I hope we can we can talk about the state of things these days. Uh, but 
Uh, more importantly, or significantly, I guess, uh, and I loved having Walter Carter talk to me. He came out to the high school and talked to us African-American students, but I would be able to talk to him on that picket line. And he'd ask me how I was doing in school and, you know, am I getting all A's at Hopkins? And I, I wasn't. I had other things to do, <laughs> really. Uh, but, uh, but he also got me a summer job once and, and, uh, and all that. And I basically told Jill about that because he didn't know. You know. He died at the age of 51 back in 1971. I was sitting over at St. Francis Academy at a crab feast and a black Josephite priest came in and told us that Walter Carter had just died. He had, he had suffered a heart attack at Union Baptist Church. Uh, and they rushed over to Maryland General Hospital, but he didn't make it. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, he, he was a mentor. Uh, but probably I had a much more longstanding relationship with a fellow named Samson Green. Uh, both of these men were civil rights activists from North Carolina. Both of these men would leave the house in the morning, kiss their, kiss their wives goodbye, leave the house, and go over to the eastern shore of Maryland and go to beaches and restaurants that were, they were not allowed in. And so they took those risks every day. Uh, and the risk was that in some of those instances, in some of those circumstances, they could be killed for challenging uh, the, the standing civil rights uh, uh, laws. But they, they, they went anyway. Uh, and Samson uh, became much more of a friend and a mentor. And he actually became godfather to my older daughter. Uh, and, and, uh, and we just spent a lot of time together. He would pick the candidates that he and I would support and the causes and, and, uh, and all of that. Uh, and he was chair of the board of St. Ambrose Housing Aid Center where I was working. So he probably had some uh, influence on saying, you know, when the nuns called, uh, send him, you know, uh, and all. So, because, you know, anyway. Uh, so, I don't know. Have I babbled enough on that? It, well, Ralph, you know, that's one of the things, like, uh, we ask a question and there, there's just thousands of stories that, that pop up in such a good way. And, uh, you know, Matt and I are just like, just soaking it in. So, uh, you know, please don't stop. But, um, but yeah, no, uh, you, you're totally fine. You're totally fine. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> well, um, one of the things that I was picking up in there uh, was it sounded like you were getting involved at a, an early age or an earlier age, right? So, so around what time did you start getting into activism because it sounded like it started before high school right because some of these connections then got you to where you went to school can you well, help us out there uh, it was actually in high school okay. uh, again there were uh jesuit priests who were uh activists there was an organization called the activists and i you know i used to you know those older guys would say here he comes getting in the way i'd go to those beatings and all that uh and I, again, I'd be on that uh, that uh, picket line and all that. Uh, but uh, I can remember while we were still in high school that, that uh, you know, they used to have something called the May procession. You ever hear that? Mm -hmm. And so in May, you would, you would lift up a, a, a statue of the Blessed Mother and walk it around the neighborhood, right? Singing songs and praying and all that kind of thing. And when I was in high school, we... Uh, we, uh, 
took over the May procession, a bunch of us, uh, and put up our, uh, our picket signs and peace signs uh, and made it an anti-war demonstration. They went on with, with uh, the May procession, but we were chanting and singing, uh, stop the war, stop the war. Uh, and when we got back to the churches, which is where it ended up, it started out there and ended up there, uh, the pastor, Father Pat Vale, who was a Josephite priest, uh, uh, gave his talk, his remarks about the bullets of the rosary. He was trying to combine <laughs> the anti-war demonstration with, oh, with the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, May procession. So he, he, he talked about the bullets of the rosary, which, you know, it might be a yeah. little bit stretch, uh, I think. Uh, and, and so that was uh, 70 or 71. In, 19, in July of 1971, uh, a small group of us uh, went into St. Pius Church uh, one night uh, and we painted the life-size statue of Jesus and all the figure, figures of Jesus and the Blessed Mother in each of the stations, we painted them mahogany color. We, made, we painted them black. We didn't have anybody's permission, uh, but it occurred to me sitting in church one day, why is everything we're looking at? I'm sitting there doing mass and everything, every icon was white. Mm. Right. And mm -hmm. it still is in most churches. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't know if you know, but there are no African-Americans officially canonized in the Catholic Church. Uh, no no, no African-Americans that are officially saints. Right. There are uh, 11 white Americans who are saints, zero. Uh, and, you know, uh, a few months back, they announced that that uh, Cardinal uh, 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 in D.C. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, why am I blanking on that? I should know that, Wilton too. Wilton Gregory. Yeah, there you go. Wilton Gregory was to become the first African-American cardinal in the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And everybody was happy, but I said, he's the first? Really? Yeah, that, that shocked me, too, Ralph. Um, I remember, I mean, obviously, the connection with the Oblat sisters, Mother Mary Lang, you know, mm -hmm. who... Right. You know, you've, you've got her and you've got Elizabeth Ann Seton, both like Baltimoreans, you know, in one sense and right. um, so close. And, and so definitely prayers for, you know, Mother Mary Lang and uh, uh, Thea Bowman. And, you know, uh, um, I believe there's right. like five or six who are close. There's six. Yeah. Yeah. Including uh, Tolton. Yep. Augustus Tolton uh, and, and uh, uh, Julio DeLille. Mm -hmm. uh, who founded the Holy Family Sisters, right. which is the second order of African-American nuns. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, so, so all of that, so the, we decided to, to not only to, uh, to paint the Jesus figure black and, and not you know, tan, but black to make the point. And then we went to each one of the stations, the 14 stations individually and painted the Jesus figure and the Mother Mary figure uh, black so the result was that you'd have this this series of of uh, pictures in those stations where uh, Jesus was being yanked on and 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 clubbed by white guys, Roman soldiers. Uh, mm. uh, so we were making a statement about race, and that stood in that church for thirty years. Wow. Uh, in fact, there were people who came uh, 
to us and ask, can you come and do it at our church? And we said, no, <laughs> because yeah. we'd have no jurisdiction. In other words, right. we're members of that church. It would be complicated, a little yeah. bit more complicated. One, to call it vandalism, because we did a good job right. with the paint job. Uh, but two, uh, because we were not parishioners, we would, you know, they, they could say we trespassed. Right. And, you know, I borrowed one of the priest's keys. I said, don't ask any questions, you know. And he was kind enough not to ask any questions. And we went in and we were there all night uh, painting. Mm -hmm. And when people came in to church the next day, that was a Friday night we did that. Uh, there was nothing said. Uh, and then I, when I came to mass on Sunday, uh, you know, things were kind of strange during mass. Uh, and then as I was leaving the church, Somebody walked up to me and said, did you have anything to do with this? <laughs> and before I could answer, 300 people were standing there screaming at me at the top of their lungs. You know, you said lots of people come to Mass in those days, 1971. Mm -hmm. uh, and people were trying to get me to fight them. There were old ladies swinging their umbrellas in my face and, and uh, whatever. Uh, and so I called the other three uh, who are still good friends of mine. Uh, and said, you guys got to get down here for the next mass, which, you know, I, I was there at nine o'clock uh, and there was a 10.30 and a 12.15, I think. Uh, yeah. So they came running down, uh, but to take some of the heat with me. Uh, but anyway, so we did we, we did that and, and uh, uh, I found myself uh, associated somewhat with both the civil rights movement and, and the, the, the movement to uh, make the, uh, Catholic Church more diverse, mm -hmm. uh, and the peace movement. So uh, I was a big fan of, of uh, Josephite priest, uh, then priest Philip Berrigan. Uh, he was at St. Peter Claver Church, which is named for a Jesuit priest. And uh, where I lived was between St. Pius and St. Peter Claver. If, if we had gone north to church a few blocks, uh, we, we would have been at St. Peter Claver. Uh, but we instead went south, uh, deeper into Harlem Park. Uh, but in order to get to the public library, which I like to go a lot uh, in those days, Branch 17 at North and Pennsylvania, uh, I couldn't get up there without passing by St. Peter Claver. And I'd see Father Philip Barrigan passing by and he'd wave. Uh, yeah. uh, and he was doing things like organizing tenants of landlords uh, where there was uh, lead in the house, for example. Mm. And that was before he got into the peace stuff real, real deep. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I can remember uh, not totally understanding all the ramifications and details of it, but I remember when Martin Luther King came out against the war on April 4th, 1967, against the war in Vietnam. Uh, and that, started to send a message to me about about uh, about that. Uh, that was in uh, April. And I think a few weeks later, maybe in May, Muhammad Ali refused induction uh, into the military uh, in 1967. Uh, and uh, that meant a lot to me. I was a big fan of Muhammad Ali. Mm. My father hated Muhammad Ali at that generation. Uh, because he was very brash and, and, and uh, challenging the system. So he was with anybody but Ali. Hmm. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd watch fights with him uh, and he would be rooting for anybody, whether it was Sonny Liston or, or uh, uh, Sugar Ray. Wow. Uh, uh, 
or whoever. Uh, so, and then a, 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 a few months after that, I think in October of 67, uh, Philip Bergen and his brother went into the uh, uh, Secret Service, I think, or, or uh, they went into some, some place. It might have been the Selective Service, I mean, not Secret, but Selective Service Office. And they poured blood on draft records wow. uh, and all in, in protest. And a lot of people don't realize that the government didn't have copies in those days. <laughs> they, people just filled out a form. Uh, and if you destroyed th those particular draft records, you essentially were uh, taking people out of the system uh, and all. And so if people wanted to uh, be in the selective service system, uh, then they had to go back down and, and re-register. Uh, and some people did, uh, and all. Some people didn't. Uh, but, uh, you know, some people say that their efforts uh, ultimately ended up with, with causing Nixon to uh, end the draft. Because uh, their efforts here in Baltimore, uh, and they did, a, 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 you know, uh, two of those, they, they, they poured homemade napalm uh, uh, on, on uh, one uh, uh, office. Uh, records uh, and all, uh, but they, um, what do you call it? Uh, they, they inspired and, and it became a whole movement of people who were, who were taking actions on, on uh, uh, draft boards uh, and all. Uh, and it got to be so many, it was hundreds of them, it got to be so many uh, that Nixon said, ah, you know, uh, to heck with it. So by the time I, I was in college uh, from 1970 to 1974, uh, and in those days, there was a lottery. Uh, you got a number from one to 366. Uh, and the lower the number, the more likely you'd be called. So my number was 57. Wow. Uh, and uh, I, uh, what do you call it, um, was um, uh, nervous that, that uh, I would be called. But by the time I, uh, Nixon ended the draft in 73. So uh, I, I didn't get the get yeah. called. Uh, but anyway, uh, but my brothers did. I had three brothers that served. Two of them served in Vietnam at the same time. Mm. Uh, and all, which was not supposed to be done, but it happened. They have a great picture of the two of them shaking hands in some city in, in uh, Vietnam. And they spent three days together. Uh, they weren't assigned to the same place. Uh, mm. But uh, but anyway, I. I, I I didn't serve. Uh, I was opposed. I wasn't afraid to go. Uh, I just, went, you know, yeah. didn't think it was a great idea. Uh, well, know. yeah, and it was and taking a stance, and you know, um, again, like what what I'm hearing and what I've known about you, Ralph, is is where you see injustice, right? like you see that there needs to be a voice, that there needs to be presence there and, and, and everything. And, um, you know, um, I've always appreciated just the, the different issues that you've uh, addressed, not just here in the show so far, but just throughout the years that we've known each other. Um, if you don't mind, I'd love to know like, all right, so there was activism when, when you were younger in high school, you know, as a young adult and everything like that. And, and more recently, um, there has been an uptick in, in activism and, and everything. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, 
just what you've seen has changed for the better in regards to um, how we're approaching some of the injustices that are, that are happening. I'd love to hear some of the things, uh, some of maybe the concerns and the hopes that you have, but just over your lifetime, as, um, as we as people continue to fight injustice, as we continue to fight sin, systematic problems like racism and you know uh, things along those lines, how have you seen activism like grow in a good way and in what ways do you like hope that it continues to grow and, and, and maybe pivots? Well, I think, I think people realize that, that uh, they can make a difference. Uh, and I think um, last year's demonstrations in support of uh, George Floyd uh, had some serious crowds, and many people remarked uh, that uh, it was interesting to see how many young white people were out there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and um, I think people people felt like you can't just kill a guy in broad daylight in the middle of a street as he begged for mercy mm -hmm. uh, because he may have passed a bad twenty dollar bill. Uh, you know. We shouldn't be conducting what I call street justice anyway. You know, if you committed a crime, you're entitled to, you're innocent until proved guilty, and you're entitled to a trial and, and et cetera and so forth. But, but what we have, have faced is, is uh, uh, instantaneous decisions that you're wrong and you deserve to die for it. So whether it's a air freshener in your rear window uh, or, uh, a bad $20 bill, or selling loose cigarettes. People don't remember that Eric Garner was, was strangled to death, just like George Floyd. Nobody seemed to care in 2014 when that happened. Mm -hmm. uh, but two things happened. One, that he was, he was, he was choked to death uh, in, in full view of a camera. And two, that nobody rendered him any medical assistance. They didn't for George Floyd. You know, the, uh, the guy who the paramedic who pulled up tapped Chavez on the uh, Chauvin on the uh, shoulder and said, uh, "I need to get to my patient, man." Uh, you know, because uh, even as they were pulling up, he just kept his knee on his neck, and and, and uh, you know, uh, so it was nice to see the way that that turned out. So that's a helpful sign, uh, I think. I think people are talking about things like like uh, race and the environment and economic injustice more than they uh, used to. Uh, now what to do about them uh, is, is where we, we've got to figure these things out. Uh, but I think there's more awareness out there. And I think there's more of a sense that, that uh, things uh, aren't what, what we thought they were. You know, and uh, I have felt like a, I've been in a, a bit of a, a, a vice in terms of uh, looking at what's happened in the past and trying to cope with emotionally and intellectually what's going on in the present. You know, so the past, you know, a couple of years ago, we had the 1619 project that the New York Times helped spearhead, you know, that talked about, you know, life in America starting with the uh, 20 slaves who arrived at, at uh, Jamestown, Virginia. Uh, in 1619, uh, and the uh, impact of, of the slave trade on the development of this country and its government. Uh, 
and it's pretty dreadful. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and uh, I've also followed uh, from that. Last summer, I did a, a little bit of research and writing about uh, what it was like to be black in the Catholic Church. Uh, the high school that I attended uh, admitted its first African American student uh, in 1956, a couple of years after the Brown decision, Brown versus the Board of Topeka, Kansas. Uh, and uh, they had rejected three African-American students that we're aware of. Uh, one was uh, Clarence Mitchell III. His father, Clarence Mitchell Jr., was the head of the uh, NAACP uh, legal defense group, or maybe not legal defense, uh, legislative group. He was like a lobbyist for the NAACP in Washington. So when Clarence Mitchell III, who told us this story uh, back in 1966, uh, I happen to remember it. Clarence has since passed on, as, a, as, as has his father. Uh, but uh, Clarence uh, talked about uh, him putting in an application. Uh, and uh, the school told him, him and his father that if they admitted him, uh, there would be riots at the school. The parents would, would object, they would riot, uh, and the school would shut down. Uh, again, this was them talking to a kid who in 1953 was, his father was very well known. Uh, and his father, and, and Clarence was a good student. He was at Booker T. Washington Junior High uh, when, when he uh, applied. While he was at Booker T, he was, he was, they were using tattered books, because in those days, the books were always handed down within the system when the white kids had, had worn them down. And so they'd get new books and we'd get the used books. Uh, and he sat on a milk crate uh, for uh, an upside down milk crate during class. Uh, and so he thought, you know, Loyola would be better, uh, obviously. They took him down. And so he and his father took the train every day to Washington. And so Clarence graduated from Gonzaga High School, uh, you know. Gonzaga admitted its first African-American students in 1956, uh, 1950, I'm sorry, a fellow named Gabe Smith. Uh, and there was a fellow named, named uh, uh, Thomas, uh, Bernard uh, Thomas, uh, that uh, had applied, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm getting things mixed up, Thomas Curtis, Thomas Bernard Curtis. He applied in the same year and they didn't admit him. They, they wouldn't let him in 53. So, he, and he was very bright. The nuns would brag on him constantly. Uh, and so he took a, a bus to Delaware every day. There's a Catholic school up there whose name I can't recall, uh, but he took a bus. So one kid going south on the bus, on the train with his father, and the other kid is taking a bus north uh, wow. every day. But there was also a guy in 19, uh, 45 named Father Paul Smith, uh, who applied and they turned him down. They said, oh, well, you applied too late. You know, like they're getting a lot of uh, uh, applications from African-American students. And Father Paul Smith, incidentally, uh, ended up becoming a, a, a Catholic priest. But he was, he was uh, ordained in New Orleans. I mean, in uh, Louisiana, not New Orleans, but Louis, uh, Alexandria, Louisiana. Uh, and he was ordained there because in, the, in, in 1964, the, the Archdiocese of Baltimore said, we don't ordain Negroes. Uh, 
the Archdiocese of Baltimore, which is the oldest archdiocese in the country, the, mm -hmm. the sea of Catholicism in America. Right. They said, we don't do it. And after his ordination, Cardinal Sheehan came into the rectory and asked if he could uh, uh, remove him from the Archdiocese of Louisiana and put him in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. And he said, no, thanks. These people have been very nice. They let him come to seminary. Mm -hmm. he, and in fact, when he died in 92 or 93, he, he requested that he be buried in Louisiana. And so his fa family honored his request. But, but the point is that well, uh, the archdiocese didn't ordain uh, African-Americans. Uh, the, the, the four women who became Oblate sisters became Oblate sisters because the standing religious orders would not accept them. Right. Uh, you know, the, the school sisters of Notre Dame, nope. The Mercy sisters, uh-uh. Uh, and so they got permission from Rome working with a priest. Uh, they got from permission, uh, a redemptorist priest. Uh, they got permission to start their own religious order. So essentially the Pope uh, endorsed segregation, uh, whether he realized it or not. Right. Uh, so they started uh, in 1829. They started St. Francis Academy in 1828 while they were in formation. Uh, uh, the school was uh, underway and the school is still uh, operating. Uh, now, the interesting thing is that, you know, the Catholic Church requires that you uh, show some sign of miracles. And it seems to me it's a miracle that the school uh, <laughs> right. was able to get started and able to uh, maintain all of these years. Uh, and you, you talked about Mother Seton, uh, um, Mother Mary Lang, one, the, the main founders of the Oblate Sisters uh, and the sisters that she was with, uh, the other three, uh, they it was a much more risky proposition for them. In other words, they were teaching the children of slaves how to read the Bible in 1828, and that was against the law they, they, uh, in some places, uh, and they could have conceivably been killed. People misunderstood the law for uh, Maryland. Uh, but anyway, uh, so the, one of the four Oblate sisters, incidentally, which most people don't know, left. Uh, Teresa Duchemin was her name. She was okay. nervous. You know, they were getting, you know, they were struggling financially. They were getting all kinds. Of, first of all, there were people who didn't believe that, that uh, African-American women should, should be nuns. They don't have the virtue, people thought. Uh, I didn't mind saying that. But she left and started her own order. Uh, and it wasn't until within the last 15, 20 years that the Immaculate Heart of Mary sisters have acknowledged that they were started by an Oblate sister. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, and and uh, they, they, they have the same rules uh, that the Oblate sisters had in terms of their governance and operation uh, and all that. Uh, and the, the sister who started them, uh, Sister Dushman, was very light complected and had grayish green eyes, I understand. But uh, when the uh, other sisters found out that she was uh, African-American, uh, they kicked her out of the order. Wow. So, uh, so again, that's the way uh, things were in those days. Mm. So I've been thinking about this kind of stuff a lot. I've been thinking about the fact that, you know, that at one time, you know, in a Catholic church, it, it was required that black folks sit in the black back. Just like we were expected to sit in the back of the bus, we were expected and ordered to sit in the back of the church. We were told that we couldn't receive communion until all the white people had received communion. 
members. This is in church. Mm. We were told in some places that we couldn't come into the building uh, and worship, even though we, we uh, our people had to help build the church. Mm. Henry Aaron, Hank Aaron, was a Catholic for a while. A lot of people don't know that. I didn't, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Well, people don't know that that uh, Henrietta Lacks was Catholic. Uh, but uh, there are lots of people like that. But Henry, uh, uh, Henry Aaron, uh, his, his uh, wife gave birth to twin boys, uh, and one of them died at birth. And the other uh, was very, very sick. And so they were, of course, very uh, uh, upset. Uh, and a nurse who was attending them introduced them to a Catholic priest. And he gave him a book about Jesus or something, which Henry Aaron kept in the glove compartment of, of his car. But eventually they converted to Catholicism uh, hmm. and all. But uh, he started out as a Baptist. He converted to Catholicism. But as he traveled around the league, he tried to go to mass on Sundays. And many of those churches wouldn't let him in. Hmm. So he, he, he eventually left the Catholic church hmm. uh, and all. Um, so... Uh, it, it, it's those types of things. It's, it's trying to live with the contradictions, you know, and it's not easy. You know, the contradictions from, from the government, you know, of taxpaying citizens, uh, you know, still fighting for the right to vote after John Lewis and many others got their heads cracked in, uh, fighting voter suppression, uh, and uh, trying to get decent wages uh, is one reason why African-Americans were brought to this country. Mm. In a word, that was to work. Mm. And so it was expected uh, that we would work uh, and we would work for free. Mm. Uh, so I think uh, there's, a, there's a, a right, he says that, that our situation in America is stolen labor on stolen land. Mm. Colin Whitehead. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know that that that's the, the the story in a nutshell. So I've felt I've dealt with with that past that history stuff, and then you deal with the present and mm -hmm. the violence is so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. the, to me, the civil rights issue of the day is is the community and the police trying to reconcile uh, that relationship, and it's not easy. So. You know, you all saw it. Just as, as we're getting word of the George Floyd uh, uh, verdict, uh, then the story comes in about about uh, what's his name, uh, Wright. Uh, oh, what's his first name? Uh, Dante. Dante Wright. Yep. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dante Wright. Right. Uh, you know, so you don't get any arrest, and then, and then that, just as you, that, that that story, and they, of course they bury him yesterday. Then there's the story in in Columbus, Ohio, of the the kid who uh, was killed by the police with four shots by a marksman, police officer, uh, because she, and she's the one who called him, looks like, right, uh, for help, uh, but she gets shot because he arrives on the scene and instantly decides. Uh, that, that uh, she's got a knife, she's gonna hurt that other kid. And so I, 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 uh, I get to shoot her uh, four times. You know, it was a matter of seconds that police pulled up uh, and shot and killed 12 year old Tamir Rice in, in Cleveland, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, 
they had gotten a report that there was a kid with a gun on the playground, uh, playground where other kids were, including his sister, uh, 14-year-old sister. Uh, and the police officer just pulled up and shot this kid, uh, you know? Uh, and so there's something that's really, really out of whack. It's really crazy here. Uh, and um, that needs to be fixed. You know, before we can get to, to liberty and the pursuit of, of happiness, we need to have the right to live guaranteed. Well, Ralph, right? You've obviously experienced so much right? Just in the stories you shared and, and the activism that you took on at a young age and just how embedded in the community that you've been. I tend to see things being displayed in such a polarizing fashion, right? Going from the conversation that we're having right now, right? But the first thing that you hear, and, and to, in some degrees, I'm even guilty of this because it is, it's injustice, right? And I want to speak out about it. I want to know more about it. I want to do all these things, but I'll hear a term like defund the police, right? And it's like immediately we, there's like this, you think there's this instantaneous solution, right? Or that, oh, it worked somewhere. So we've got to do it here. And it's, it, it strikes me that we go to the polls, right? Like meaning it's, it's like all or nothing. You're either like, your pendulum's one side or it's the other. And, and I feel like you've probably been having these conversations now for 50 plus years and, and probably yeah. before that, right? Yeah. And, and so how do we start with the small steps, right? How do we start here, right? Like, and maybe you don't have the answers for that, right? But I don't think the answer is quite like, oh, we've got to go defund police, it's gotta be like, there's gotta be small 1% advancements over time that are gonna make this so that my daughter and Chris's sons and your grandchildren aren't having these conversations 50 years from now, right? Right, well, and that's what I, I am concerned about. I'm, I'm concerned that I've got three grandsons now. Uh, that's not to say that my granddaughter would be totally out of the woods. Uh, but it's the boys that you you, you, you worry about actively, uh, you know. And I've tried to explain to the the guy that, that runs the high school where I attended, the, the president of that high school, that the African-American students on this campus are likely to have a different experience than uh, most of the other kids on, on the campus. Uh, that they could leave the, the, the grounds and be, uh, and encounter a, a police officer or a sheriff or, or something, and and uh, that could possibly uh, not be good. Uh, but I, I think you know where do you begin? Uh, I think one of the questions you all wanted to wanted to ask was about uh, what's the uh, what what what's something that people can can uh, can do starting out, uh, and I think. You start out, I think, trying to, to, to you start out making a commitment for, on the issue of race, making a commitment to be an anti-racist. You know, that was the point of that book, right? If I can't, uh, Ibrahim uh, Kendi, yeah. yeah, Kendi's book. And he wasn't the first person to say that. You know, uh, I think Angela Davis was uh, back in the She came up with that, that phrase. But nonetheless, uh, that 
you know, he makes a commitment. And I always say, I've said to people for years, you know, if you want to know how to get started, if you work in an office building, pull the janitor aside and, and gently ask them, how much are you paid? Mm. And do you have any benefits? You know, ask them gently because you don't want to, you know, act like you're dipping into anybody's business. Uh, and if you have a relationship with that person where you just say hi every day or, or, or whatever, uh, that you might be able to, to get them to respond. But that, that could tell you something. You know, you're not starting uh, the revolution, but you're saying you want justice in that building. You know, nobody notices when you walk in a building that somebody made sure that, that the floors were swept up and, and polished uh, and that the trash was empty uh, and the windows were washed and all that. People don't notice uh, good cleaning and maintenance. They notice bad cleaning. And maintenance. Mm. They just take it for granted. So that's a little thing, little kind of thing that, 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 that uh, people can do. Uh, but I think it starts by listening uh, and uh, being willing to talk to people, you know, and, and, and hear them. I asked John Lewis, he was here at, at the uh, Pratt Library once years ago, uh, and uh, I got his book and he was nice enough to autograph it. I remember now that uh, Noel Raget has my copy, she's a Jesuit volunteer that runs our peace camp. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I said, well, how do we get people in, 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 involved? The few minutes I had in, in the line to get my autograph. Uh, and he said, well, you got to talk to people. And I think that's absolutely right. You know, that you talk to people and see where they are uh, and, and what their issues are and what their concerns are and, 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 and whether or not you can, can get in, you can engage them to try to bring about uh, some change. So uh, years before that, uh, when I was working in, in the neighborhood where uh, St. Francis was, and I was not supposed to be working on tenant issues, I was supposed to be helping people buy their house from their landlord. The problem is that people just didn't have uh, enough money to buy a house and, uh, and the houses were in such crappy shape. So, uh, and people would say to me, well, if I could buy a house, why would I buy one around here? <laughs> so I didn't really have an answer uh, at all. Uh, but I, I started to bring together, uh, after going door to door and talking to people, people who said, we've applied for a housing assistance, like a public housing unit or a section eight certificate, and we don't get an answer. So I started with six women uh, and I can remember just like it was yesterday, the day of standing out in front of St. Francis, I said, meet me here uh, at uh, uh, 10 o'clock. And one by one, they showed up. Uh, and, you know, I don't drive a car, I never have uh, at all. Uh, you might remember that, Chris. I do, uh, I do. I remember right. that, yeah. Well, I, st I, I, I still don't, and that's, on the, that's another long story. Uh, but but they, uh, they showed up and we went down and sat in at the housing department. Mm -hmm. uh, and demanded uh, housing assistance. And so, you know, a couple of them got help. And then we said, well, we'll have to come back next week until everybody gets help. So when, the, when we agreed for the next week, each one of those women without being known about it brought somebody with them. Mm -hmm. So there were 13 women to go down the next time. Uh, and so we took them down. Uh, but as we were getting ready to go down, I said, well, well you need to bring your boom box and you're playing cards 
uh, and your grandchildren who you, you're babysitting because uh, we want to look like we're going to be there for a while. And so they did. Uh, but we trained beforehand. We said, listen, nobody gets to cuss at anybody. Nobody needs to, gets to put their hands on anybody. Uh, we're going we're gonna, to, um, you know, work and, and participate uh, with dignity and, and it, with nonviolence uh, and all. And so they all agreed. I said, but here's the other thing. If they tell you anything, when you, when you are pushing and demanding a, a, a better place to live and they tell you anything other than here it is and here are the keys, say so you don't understand, you know, uh, and all. And so they did. And I think the, the third and fourth times we went down, and we may have gone down maybe five or six times, uh, they were taken down as many as 40 to 50 people. Wow. Uh, and they didn't know how to, when to expect us. So for example, we went down one winter day uh, and it was snowing outside. And they said, oh, it's snowing. They've never come down today. <laughs> and there we were in the snow. We just brushed the snow off of us as we were going into the building. And we sat in the uh, outer area of the housing uh, commissioner's uh, office. And the outer area is where the receptionist was. And the way they had it set up, uh, if somebody said they wanted to go to the bathroom, then she'd have to take the key out of her desk and walk the person down the hall, especially those little children. So that's why we told them to come and, and bring their grandchildren and right. bring a lot of bring a lot of Kool-Aid for them to drink. <laughs> so uh, that poor lady, uh, they locked the door to the inner office and left her out there by herself. But we knew that that would be uh, some pressure uh, from her to take care of these people and get them out of there. But that was uh, our direct action stuff. Uh, and, uh, you know, we did other demonstrations, uh, but, but uh, things like that. Uh, but, you know, it starts with a simple conversation. And the, the two best things you can do, I, one is listen to people, right? Uh, and, and, uh, and two is to understand uh, and to be there. You know, you know, one of the things that happens with poor people is that there are people who come through uh, and, and they're, the, they're the latest snake oil salesman to come through town. They're going to fix all of your problems uh, and all, all you have to do is. Uh, but uh, I just said, listen, let's try this and see what happens. Let's, let's go down to the housing department uh, and demand uh, that you get uh, you know, a decent place to live. You know, Frederick Douglass said it best when he said, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. And so they would pick these people off one by one. You know, the first time we went down, uh, one of the ladies, one of the six ladies said, you know, I applied for housing assistance when my daughter was a, a, a baby. She said, oh, really? So how old is she now? She said, well, there she is sitting right there. And the, that lady was about 35, 36 years old. Uh, so um, that didn't uh, put me in good stead uh, back at the home office. Uh, St. Ambrose at that time was being run by an ex-Jesuit priest, uh, and he was being called by the then mayor, William Donald Schaefer. Uh, Schaefer was demanding how much longer I'd be put, I would be on the staff. Uh, I was eventually fired from that job mm -hmm. uh, and all, but I've been fired several times. 
really, people always say, we really love your work, but uh, do it somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but uh, but yeah, and, and Don Shaver and I actually got to even uh, participate in a debate about about housing and, 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 and Baltimore on uh, national TV live. Uh, that's what that picture is up there. Uh, ABC News, that's Ted Koppel there. Uh, but but uh, we, we, we debated the merits of, of uh, where Baltimore City was going. That was back in 1981. Wow. Uh, and and uh, uh, but, but uh, he was constantly pressuring my boss for me to be uh, removed from the staff, which eventually uh, I was. Because we were showing up, we were showing up at the housing department. We were showing up at the city's board of estimates where they they meet and decide how, how funding is going to be spent in the city, uh, and show up down at the uh, Hyatt Hotel where the city had gotten a ten million dollar grant uh, and, and uh, an urban development action grant they called it in those days. Mm. But uh, we were uh, being a bit of a of a uh, of a pain. Uh, but anyway, I just think that people need to pick a fight and see where it goes, pick an issue yeah. uh, and see where it goes and listen. And, and if, if, if the everyday folks don't want to do it, then you don't do it. Yeah. Uh, but those people, again, I took six women down there and the next week it was like 13. <laughs> so like, you know, it, they were telling their friends and before you know it, they're, they're telling more friends, you know? Well, and I, I think part of that is as, as you start to see momentum, right? And hope with that momentum and hope combined that mm -hmm. it's it's something attractive to move towards, right? And sure. and just from this conversation that we're having, you know, and, and, and all the stories that you're sharing, you know, it started with this burden, right? Or this like, um, this feeling of something's broken, something's not right, we need to address it. But then that there's a that even though there's not clarity around the solution, that there is a solution as long as we move together and that we communicate together and and that it's done with respect, um, not just for the group that's in that movement together, but um, you know, um, listening and, and approaching the other side with um, you know with with rule like like you were mentioning as you prepared for some of these. Um, uh, as you prepared to, to go down and demonstrate at the housing, like how there were certain rules, like ways to prepare and to engage. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not just to make sure that you don't get in trouble, but also to make sure that you are doing it with, with coordination and connectedness. And, and I think, focus. In other words, focus, we, don't, right. we don't want to go, we don't, you don't want to let somebody's language become the issue. Right. You, don't want to, you don't want somebody hitting somebody upside the head to become the issue. What you want is a decent place to live, a decent, right. affordable place to live. So that's how we're going to operate. That's what we're going to focus on. So keep keep it uh, keep it together. Uh, and and uh, so people were prepared. You know, it's interesting. I I I, uh, I was asked by one of the radio stations, Morgan State Radio, to uh, to bring some of the women on to talk about uh, their their situation. So I, I asked a couple of women if they would go on the radio show with me. Uh, and I said, sure. And so when we got there, uh, they were very nervous, you know? Uh, and so they'd say, well, what are your names? And they go, uh, 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 Geraldine. Okay, good, good. Uh, and so it was like that. 
they, 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 they couldn't talk, they couldn't uh, understand, uh, uh, couldn't uh, uh, relax and, and uh, participate in the conversation. And the first time we went down to the Board of Estimates, it was the same thing. We had rehearsed what they would say and what they would do when we got down there and they, they, uh, they wouldn't do it. So I jumped up on a chair and said, excuse mm -hmm. me, Mr. Mayor, uh, we're down here because uh, these folks want a decent, place, affordable place to live. So I'm standing on a chair and, and they took a picture of it and put it on the front page of the Afro newspaper. Uh, mm -hmm. and all. I was wearing a, 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 a t-shirt that said Chicago. I'd just been in Chicago. So oh, yeah. Mayor says, why are you wearing a Chicago t-shirt? Know, he's he's picking the bet. <laughs> What's that all about? But anyway, uh, um, but, it, but so the point is that they they were still very nervous. They were still, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, very green in terms of dealing with, you know, I mean, when you see the mayor, president of the city council, and city controller on the dais, and in those days there was a lot of news media down there. They come mm -hmm. to every board of estimates meeting, so I think the situation made them nervous. Again, even though we had practiced. You know, there's a key to practicing, there's a key to making sure we all understand uh, what the rules are. Now, I was trained as a community organizer. I mean, right. the, the two men I cited earlier, uh, Walter P. Carter and Samson Green were community organizers. Uh, you know, they had uh, degrees in social work, uh, masters in social work, but that, that's what they're, so that's what I, I where I, I, I learned it. But I also trained with the National People's Action in Chicago and these were all disciples of Saul Alinsky, mm -hmm. uh, the, the sort of godfather of community organizing. I also trained with, with the uh, Emilio Foundation in St. Louis. Uh, and then the Industrial Areas Foundation was the third organization, which was, uh, is the parent organization for the BUILD organization here in Baltimore, Baltimore and United Leadership Development. So I, I, I did some training with them. Uh, and out of two out of those three, uh, uh, organizations uh, sent people to town the week after I, I left uh, and tried to get me to come and work for them. I had just started working at St. Ambrose, so I wasn't going to quit my job there. Uh, and in another instance, when I was training with the, the uh, Industrial Areas Foundation, uh, they were uh, every night after the classes and, and the drinks before dinner, they were trying to convince me to come and, and, uh, and work for them. Yeah. Uh, but I, I didn't. But anyway, so I, I had had some training, but I also had the, the active mentoring of, of uh, Samson Green saying, you know, uh, are you doing this? Make sure you do that. Keep your focus here, you know, and that was, uh, that was very, uh, very helpful uh, and all. And the problem was, again, he was chairman of the board at St. Ambrose. And so it was complicated for them. Even though I would always ask, uh, am I causing this organization any trouble? You know, because Mayor Schaefer at that time, he was a, uh, a very well-known mayor mapped here in, in, this, in this country as mayors yeah. go with, with uh, you know, building harborside uh, mm -hmm. shopping centers like Harbor Place uh, with the Rouse Company mm -hmm. uh, and all that. Uh, but, but uh, you know, he was, he was very unhappy and he, he was making it known. Yeah. So he was demanding I'd be fired uh, and all. Uh, and and Vinny Quayle held off as long as he could, but eventually he called me up and said, "You know, this is ha this has to be your last day, thus and such a day." And, and uh, I said, oh, "Okay." So, uh, well, well, Ralph, you know, 
again, like you never uh, cease, cease to amaze me in the sense that, um, you know, the fact that there's not a, a, a fight too big for you, you know, like you're, you're like David going in against Goliath. And, um, and I, I think that passion and that um, example is, is so inspirational. And again, I just love the stories that we're hearing and, the, and there's so much richness here. Um, and, and I don't know about you, Matt, but I feel like we could go on for hours just continuing to just learn more and more about Baltimore. But um, uh, as we, uh, you know, wrap up here, um, Ralph, um, mm -hmm. if, if people want to like connect with you or learn more about your story, I mean, I, I, I know all you have to do is, is Google Ralph Moore Baltimore, but um, if people want to reach out and maybe connect with you, what, what are some of the best ways that they can do that? Uh, they can reach me by my cell phone, uh, which is 443-255-5600, or uh, they can send me an email at V as in victory, P as in Paul, C as in cat, S as in Sam at yahoo.com. I used awesome. to be vice president for community services when I was with the Maryland Police Commission. Awesome. Uh, and if people are looking to support something, we do run our peace camp. Uh, we've been doing that for 15 years. Uh, we're trying to teach positive conflict resolution and nonviolence to young people. Uh, everything else tells the children to fight and be violent. And so we're trying to counter program to some extent. Uh, nice. So the kids have to get to have fun, uh, but they also need to learn about peace heroes and to learn about respecting themselves, respecting others, and respecting the environment, uh, and to become peacemakers in their homes, in their school communities, in their neighborhoods, where their sports teams play, or other extracurricular activities. But it's it's a a positive effort. So. We're about to do year number 15. We did a virtual camp last, last summer. Right. Uh, and we probably will do at least partially virtual uh, this year where we use a, we have a, a uh, our own YouTube channel. And so we do classes on YouTube that, that the kids can do live or, or they can come back later uh, and do them. Because kids get sick of a, of a, uh, oh, yeah. a computer screen after a while. So many screens, yeah. Yeah, we think it's the greatest thing in the world, but but uh, although I think there's compute, computer screen fatigue among adults too, just all the Zoom. Uh, so anyway, uh, I just mentioned that something that I'm actively involved with. And one of the Jesuit volunteers uh, has been with me from the start. Uh, pretty much, her, her name is Wall uh, Rajay. I don't know if you know the Wall, Chris. No, no, no. But I, I see your name um, on the site for uh, for the Peace Camp. And uh, we'll have that link to uh, uh, the Peace Camp at peacefulmeans.org. And uh, people Ooh. can learn a little bit more there in the show notes. But Ralph, again, uh, we're going to have to connect not just uh, next time I see you at Waverly Market, but uh, <laughs> uh, for a cup of coffee or something like that. And um, Sure, that would be great. That yeah. Would be great. And on, on behalf of Matt, uh, just thank you so much for, for being on the show. Well, thanks for inviting me. And, and Matt, it's nice to meet you. It's been a and, pleasure, uh, Ralph. You guys keep up the great work. Thank you. Thank you. Peace. Peace.
This has been a Between the Miles production. Your hosts, Chris Wesley and Matt Wells. Music provided by Jam Studio Wide Open Road. For more information, visit our website at betweenthemiles.com.